I'd love to have you take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, of course, uh, last week we returned to our bread and butter here after the Advent series, preaching series, and that is preaching through Bible books. And we began uh, taking a look at the Gospel of Mark, the life of Christ, the person of Jesus as represented in the Gospel of Mark last September, and we returned to that last week in chapter 5. And so today we step into the next section, Mark 6, 1 through 29, this ministry year, uh, working our way through the whole gospel of Mark, and that'll conclude, of course, in June sometime. But today we come to this interesting section, uh, very sobering. There's a lot of challenge here, some rebuke, uh, some encouragement, and a lot of things related to the theological discipline of apologetics, which I'll define for you more fully in a few minutes. But a number of things lead us down that path wanted to mention to you as we step into our time in God's Word, uh, your Sunset staff uh, is, is preaching elsewhere as well as normal as uh, takes place on Sunday morning. Pastor Kevin is up at Central Bible Church this morning. Pastor Craig is down at Grace Community Church uh, this Sunday. And the next couple, we do not have anybody over at Temple Baptist. They have their pulpit filled otherwise. But those are places we routinely have our staff uh, preaching on Sunday mornings and wanted you to know who's where. We come today to to a section that stands in stark contrast to where we were last week. I'm looking at the section called Today's Text. I'll let you look at the parts called Review. But in chapter 5 last week, we saw evidences of faith. We saw positive response to the ministry of Jesus. But you step into Mark 6 in this particular uh, part, verses 1 through 29, and the unbelief is so thick you could cut it with a knife. It's astounding to Jesus. And so we want to look at it under that heading, uh, willing. I call it willing unbelief. And I want to define it, what I mean by that. Because sometimes people struggle with doubts and questions. And I don't, if that's you, I don't want, I don't want you to think, oh, no, is this text describing me? Because I don't, I don't want to be in that. I want to be able to have questions and, and ask uh, things. And maybe in the middle of the night, think about areas that I question or doubt. Fine, you can do that, but there's something else going on in the text today. I call it willing unbelief, a steel door being slammed, if you will. So we'll look at this together, a lot to cover, and I'd like to pray for us that God would help us in our time in his word. So would you join me, please, as we pray together? Our Father, as always, we come to your word with great joy and anticipation, grateful for this moment that we as a church family throughout the morning uh, in our services can open the word of God together and here find common ground. Here we can learn what you are like and how we can know you through Jesus and his death on the cross in our place, his resurrection from the dead, the words of the gospel in the person of Christ. Thank you for this. And I pray that now as we look at the, the portion of scripture in front of us, that you would draw us to yourself, challenge our hearts. And I pray that all of us who hear would, would respond with joy and a, a positive response of faith to you as our God and our King. So help us now, I pray in your word in Jesus name. Amen. So Mark chapter 6 then, verses 1 through 29, if you look at my sermon notes that you have on the, uh, from there in the bulletin, and you look at the text in front of you, you'll see that there are three elements, three movements, three vignettes, all right? And I'm going to deal with them under the, the different headings that are presented here in front of you, uh, verses 1 through 6, and then 7 through 13, and then 14 through 29. So I have a different heading for each one, each of them using that keyword of unbelief as kind of a, a, a summary. Summary, uh, some element here from the text, uh, the devastation of willing unbelief. But to get us started, I'd like to read this whole portion, and then we'll talk about it under those, those three headings, all right? So Mark chapter 6, 1 through 29, God's Word. The he here is Jesus, by the way. He went away from there, came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. 
And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, five questions here, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over unclean spirits, and he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, and, but, to, uh, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent And he cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he's Elijah. And others said, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said... John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. And that was an explanation. If you notice in the text, it's an explanation of why he said that. Okay? For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him. And wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what shall I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. She came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. God's word. Wow. Isn't that, isn't it? I mean, I don't want to say, isn't that an amazing story? That's an awful story. Uh, I, I remember early exposure to this story because in the house in which I grew up, we had a few Bible story books. Um, and I remember it was one that was illustrated. And I remember reading this story and looking at the illustrations. I could reproduce it right now for you because on my young mind, it was deeply imprinted because here was John the Baptist's head, long hair and so on. And I'll, I'll save you some other details from the standpoint of a young guy. I have to say, instead of saying, oh, that's awful. I was thinking, whoa, cool. 
I really did. Uh, it's, I mean, it's an amazing story. I'm a young guy. I, back in the day, we didn't make our Bible story books fearful of scarring our children. Uh, today, we would probably not illustrate that or something, put little uh, bunnies or something. I don't know. Well, here's the story, and that's the death of John the Baptist. Of course, the, the details are given all in support of verses 14 to 16. Now, more on that as we move along. Uh, and we will. We'll talk, about, we'll talk about John the Baptist and Herod and some of these. But I want to go back to verses 1 through 6 and just move through the text in order under those headings that I've given you. Verses 1 through 6, my heading here, unbelief is not simply about lack of evidence. Okay? Now, we're coming here to Nazareth. Nazareth, of course, is Jesus' hometown, not his birthplace, Bethlehem, but Nazareth, the place where he was, he was raised. You can read about some of the comings and goings that produced that uh, back in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. Four Gospels, of course, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each telling the story of Jesus with a different angle, different flavor. But uh, Jesus was raised then in Nazareth. This is like his hometown, small town. The kind of place where everybody knows everybody's business. Some of you know about that, where they never let it go. You show up years later for a high school reunion, they go, oh, that's right. You're the one who in junior high, and they know your stuff, and they never forget. So it's that kind of place. Now, Jesus makes more than one trip to Nazareth. Uh, Nazareth, by the way, is off the beaten path. You kind of had to want to go there. It's in kind of a bowl-shaped thing at the bottom of a, of a hill, and it's set there because that's the water source. Ancient cities typically grew up uh, because of a place you could defend or because of a water source or a major highway, uh, you know, travel route. So cities were placed very strategically in ancient times. You didn't just pipe in water. There's a water source in this little bowl-shaped area, and so you go to Nazareth. Probably a few hundred people lived there when Jesus was raised. And as happened, uh, routinely uh, on a Sabbath in a synagogue, a traveling rabbi, as Jesus was, would have been asked to, if you want to say something, you could. So Jesus, traveling rabbi, comes in and um, talks a little bit. We're not told in this text what he said. But right away, the people listening to him are thinking, huh, who's this kid? He's a hometown boy. Be like us. You know, he graduated from Curtis High School. He says he's a rabbi. Seriously. Who does he think he is? And then begin these questions. Where did he get this? Or how come he get this wisdom? How did these mighty acts take place? And uh, I mentioned in my notes, uh, second bullet point there, uh, one of them is not complimentary. Yeah, that's the part where it says, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? Now, more proper in the day would be for him to be identified by his dad, Joseph. Even if dad had died, he would more likely have been identified as, who's this guy? The carpenter, the son of Joseph. But instead they say the son of Mary. What's the deal? Well, I know, small town, most commentators would agree, this, this is a, a, a bit of a knife prick. Saying, hey, we remember what happened when this guy was born. We're not sure about his dad, but we are sure about his mom. Remember his mom? There was a story about getting pregnant by an angel. Oh, that was a great one. Here he is again. This guy. Who does he think he is? And they take offense at him. That's, that's kind of the backstory here. Now, again, I'm looking at my second bullet point here on the sermon notes in front of you. Um, I'm asking a question here. You can mull this over too. I regularly encourage you to do things as we read the Bible. And one of those is to ask logical questions, especially as you read the different gospel accounts and think about how they work. It would be a reasonable question to ask here. Like I remember other visits to Nazareth being described. What about the one in Luke 4? Because you find Jesus going to a synagogue in Nazareth, reading from Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach the gospel of the poor and so on. Recover your sight to the blind. He quits reading in the middle of, of that portion from Isaiah and says to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing and sits down and they get offended at him. And you remember in that story, they lead him out on the hill uh, right next to Nazareth. There's this mountain that's called Mount Precipice. You can go there today and look down over Nazareth and from Mount Precipice, if somebody shoved you off, let's say it would hurt and probably kill you. And in Luke four, we're told they wrestled him around, took him up to Mount Precipice, intending to throw him off the cliff. It's your hometown, by the way. Welcome home. 
And in Luke 4, it says he escaped their grasp and got away. And I can just picture he's in his 30s. We're not told how he eluded their grasp, but I'm picturing him up there looking down and going, I don't think this is the way it's supposed to end. And who knows, maybe he did something like, hey, look, over there, an angel. And then boom, bolted to the left. I don't know how he did it. He was young. He was in his 30s. He could still get around. And he knew that that wasn't the way that the father had intended for him to die. So he just knew it's not today, boys. And he eluded their grasp. Now, question then, is this the same visit? People ask things like this. Um, now, some commentators look at it, the, the, the way things are laid out in Luke and say, yeah, but that's early in the chronology. Um, this is a little later. Uh, the answer to that would be, yeah, but at the same time, Luke arranges his material thematically, not chronologically, which, by the way, as I address a number of, of, of apologetic issues today, Apologetics is the the theological discipline of explaining and defending the faith, whether it's the scripture or theology in general, philosophy of religion. uh, Apologetics is a specific branch of theology where you think through reasons to believe in God, reasons to believe the Bible. And sometimes people, because they just don't know these things, they look at the Bible and say, yeah, but that story's here. And then you get to another gospel, it's over here. I mean, somebody's inaccurate, wrong. Uh, That's reading it from a western mind a lot of writers as the case in the bible arrange material thematically not intending to be chronological they're trying to prove a point so they pull the stories from jesus life and arrange them this way to teach you something and along comes us from a western mindset and we say but things should always be in order shouldn't they well that would be news to the rest of the world uh, we have our rules about how we read literature. The, uh, other people arrange literature differently. So sometimes you see things in different places in the Gospels. Don't be alarmed. Just be aware, like in the Gospel of Luke, he arrange, you, can, you can see it in what he does. It's arranged thematically, not chronologically, on purpose. So that's kind of interesting. Did I answer the question, is it the same visit? No, I'm not sure either. Okay, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I do know this, Jesus makes repeated visits to Nazareth, and in each case, his hometown, they reject him. Unbelief is thick. And may I say, it's not simply about lack of evidence. It isn't because they, they didn't see him heal the sick. They did. That's in verse, verse 5. He did lay his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and apparently that wasn't amazing to them. So it's not lack of evidence. So I want to say a couple of things here, okay? Many times when we think about unbelief, um, we equate it with asking questions or having doubts. And I want to separate the two. If you're a person who sometimes has questions about the Bible or questions about issues of faith, or you would say, I even have doubts, put them in that category, not just questions, I have doubts, okay? I want you to know you're in a good place here, to wrestle with those questions and doubts. This is a safe place to do that and to ask, for goodness sakes, ask good questions. The unbelief that is so rampant in this text isn't that. We're talking here about a settled conviction. Don't give me facts. Don't give me proofs. Don't give me any kind of reasons. I will not believe. The door is shut. That's where you find Jesus encountering every time he goes to his hometown. There's no record of a revival here from the hometown boy. Jesus says correctly, a prophet is not without honor anywhere he goes, except when he goes home. And when he comes home, he's the kid from down the street and nobody wants to hear it. So it isn't lack of evidence. It's a decision that says, I won't believe. You've probably come across people like this in your life. Hopefully it isn't you where you'd say the mind is so shut. It doesn't matter what you say. They won't change their mind. Maybe some of you are married. Well, okay, I won't go there. But there are people who say this about spouses. It doesn't matter what you say. That person will not change his mind about anything. You could give him pages of proof. Means nothing. The door is shut. Well, you might say that here about the kind of unbelief that I'm describing. I call it willing unbelief, chosen, deep-seated, culpable, immune to reason or proofs. Now, a couple more things about this. I have in bold here under my third bullet point. Many times unbelief, the kind of unbelief I'm describing, is driven by sinful moral choices. Okay, you should think about that. There are times when a person 
can see that if I, if I accept the message of the Bible, it will mean that my moral choices need to change. And I'm not up for that. So the way to escape that is to say, I don't believe it. Because I know that if I did, if I embraced the Jesus of the Bible, my life would have to change. And I won't. I like where I'm at. So forget the facts. I'm staying here. Sometimes that's in a sinful moral situation. By the way, if you want a verse that gives an example of that, 1 Peter 2.8 describes what I just said. Where Peter says they stumble because they are disobedient to the truth. They stumble because they disobey. We typically think of it the other way around. They disobey because they don't believe. Peter says, no, no, it's the other way around. See, it isn't they disbelieve and therefore disobey. No, no, they disobey and therefore do not believe. Isn't that interesting? It's the opposite of what we routinely would say. Now, I I want to say this as well, and this is under my section called Responding to God's Word, but I want to comment on it now so your mind can percolate on this a bit. Um, I am, a, I am a, an advocate of the discipline, the theological discipline of apologetics, certainly. But I, I would want to remind all of us who think about apologetics that, that for all your good arguments and all your reasons to believe, are you ready for this? You can't reason one person into the kingdom of God. Okay? You can't. It takes more than good reasons and evidence. There are a lot of people who say, well, if you could convince me of, and you know what? That isn't really true. There's something else that's required for any person to come to faith. You ready? It's the work of God in that person's heart to open blind eyes and to draw that person to himself. No one by their brains alone comes to faith. The work of God is required. See, and yeah, I know we're stepping into some areas of theology here. Well, I've, I've stepped into those a time or two, and I believe what I just said. Apart from the Spirit of God, no one will come. Okay? So you think about that. More than, more than one freshman in Bible college, having come out of a course on Apologetics 101, says, man, I can now explain all the reasons for the God in the Bible. I've got them all. And off they go to the mall to say, they're all coming to church. We're going to save the world today. They walk in and give to somebody all the reasons to believe in God. And the person goes, yeah, forget it. I don't believe in that at all. And they walk away. Well, I had great arguments. I had great logic. Wow. And see, you're, you're right. And their hearts were slammed shut. Not only they didn't believe, I would suggest at that moment they couldn't. Wow. More on this a little bit later. Okay? But these are things that I believe really are going on. So in this first vignette then, verses 1 through 6, verses one through six Jesus is in Nazareth. Nowheresville, uh, I call it. Um, it. It is indeed that. And unbelief. Verse 6, he marvels at how thick it is in town. Now, moving to my next section, verses 7 to 13, okay? Where Jesus sends out the 12. Now, in verses 7 through 13, they're called the 12. In verse 30, they're called the apostles, okay? Uh, The apostles and disciples are... uh, uh, The terms mean something different in the Bible. There are a lot of disciples in the Bible. There's the 12 that are disciples. There's a lot of others who are disciples too. There's a group called the 12, but apostle is something different. Apostle, by word, means sent ones, and disciples is talking about those who are followers. The 12 were a specific group. They're also called apostles, specifically sent ones. If you've been here at Sunset Bible Church, you've heard me preach on this before, as I'm sure I will repeat endlessly until Jesus comes or I'm not here anymore. But in the Bible, the word apostle is used in at least two different ways. Uh, It is used in the capital A sense of a specific group. By the way, a closed group. Somebody comes along today and says, I'm an apostle. God speaks through me. I say nonsense. No, you can be sent all you like, 
No, there's, there's, there's a certain number, a limited number that spoke authoritatively for God. That would be the 12, and then Judas leaves, the Apostle Paul joins. They're the only ones in the Bible that are, that are listed as speaking authoritatively, thus says the Lord, on God's behalf. Those are capital A apostles. There's something unique there. That's a closed group does not continue. Small a apostle are those who are sent ones. I would consider missionaries, among many others, in that category, sent on a specific mission. Okay, that's a bit of a sidebar, but it's, it's, it's important to the text. So in verses 7 to 13, I say unbelief does not suspend the mission. Jesus sends out the 12. He calls the 12. He sends them out. You get this, verse 7. He sends them out with some of his authority. That's what's going on here. He sends them out with his authority. This is a temporary mission to uh, have authority over unclean spirits and uh, healing those who are sick. This is a specific task. This is not an ongoing thing because you look at the way it's described, no bread, no bag, no money in the belts. These are instructions for a specific, it's like going on a mission trip. Here's the package for this mission trip. Here are the requirements. Don't take any luggage, no visa card, uh, no extra food. Whoever cares for you is going to care for you. If you go in and stay in one house, you don't get a better offer and move down the street because they have nicer accommodations. Don't do that. So he gives them specific instructions for a specific mission trip. And I put in your notes here, please get this. Uh, This is descriptive, not prescriptive. Prescriptive would be those things in the Bible that would say, this is true for all times and all places. This is God's call for all times and all places. There's a lot of that in the Bible. This is true for all times. Who God is, his moral boundaries, true for all times and all places and all peoples. Okay? Descriptive is describing certain, maybe I can say attending circumstances. How to travel. In this case, travel light. Jesus tells him, travel light. Um, Just take a few things. Don't take a lot. How do I know it's descriptive rather than prescriptive? Well, elsewhere in the New Testament, other mission trips are assigned and the rules are different. You'll find it as I've given you here, 3 John 7 and 8. If you want to look it up, you'll find a different group going out differently with different boundaries. It doesn't mean God changed his mind. It'd be like us saying, I'm going to send a group to New York City and a group to Southern Sudan. Do you think the trips will be different? I hope to shout. Yeah, it'll be a lot different in how you travel and what you plan for and the kind of shots you take ahead of time. So let's not get stumbled here too much on the specifics, the details like that. No, describing the trip, not prescribing for all times. That's good. So if you go on a mission trip, you can take extra food. Isn't that great? That's important. I do too when I go places. Well, uh, the shaking off the dust. Do you see this in verse 11? Jesus, in a sense, is preparing them for rejection. He doesn't say a lot about what's going to happen if there's a a big revival. He just says, if any place won't receive you and they won't listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that's on your feet. I gave you a cross-reference here to Acts 13. That's a place where Paul and Barnabas do exactly that. By the way, that shaking off the dust from your feet is is a symbolic act of judgment. It's saying... You people have refused to hear from God, and judgment is going to come, and I don't want to be anywhere close when lightning strikes, so I'm shaking off the dust from my sandals, and it was supposed to speak judgment to the person who was having that done to them. It was supposed to say, pay attention, the prophet who just was here is shaking off the dust and saying, you're under God's judgment, and we're out of here. Maybe you should listen. So it was intended to be a stark, a very vivid uh, statement. Of, of you have rejected God and his truth. So he's, he's preparing them for this. Preparing. Now, I, under my heading, unbelief does not suspend the mission. That's how I, I look at this. We're talking about unbelief that's so thick you could cut it with a knife in Nazareth. Jesus then, it goes right into this. He sends out the 12, two by two, prepares them to be rejected. And off they go, um, preach repentance. And before I leave this topic... I wanted to press on this, again, in an apologetic-related area, okay? You see my third bullet point here? I've spoken already about the authority with which Jesus gives this group of of 12 apostles, again, so-called. They're called apostles in verse 30, sent ones, specific sent ones. I'm speaking of his authority. This authority applies to the apostles, including the apostle Paul. Why is that a deal? 
I will tell you very specifically, if you pay attention to things that are said, I hear it sometimes in Christian circles. Sometimes these things are in books and on the radio and certainly on the Internet. And there's a lot of nonsense. And many times God's people are so gullible, it's, it's amazing. And so you will have someone today who says something like, you know, I like Jesus, but not Paul. Jesus just loved everybody. Paul came out with things. He said, don't do this, don't do that. Dropped moral things. Said, don't do this, that's sin. And I don't really like that, so I don't like Paul, but I like Jesus. I'm going to call theological, well, foul. There's a whole variety of ways, given the setting, that I could describe that. Theological nonsense. I would say, you don't have the authority to do that. Because the Apostle Paul, I want to read you First uh, Timothy 1.1. 1, 1. So, so, so listen carefully. Paul says, he says this kind of thing over and over again. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. An apostle, by command of God, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. Who gave the Apostle Paul his authority to speak? God. Over and over again, Paul says, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. I was sent by him. That's called the Damascus Road moment. I was called by him and sent by him. I go in his authority to be a sent one. To be an apostle, capital A, is to go with the authority of the one who sends you. I go in his name I go in his authority. So I'm saying this to those today who would say, well, I like Jesus, but not Paul. I would say, you don't just have a problem with Paul. You have a problem with God himself. That's where your problem is. You have a problem with Jesus, who was the one who gave Paul his authority to speak on those moral issues. Your problem isn't with Paul. Your problem is with God. Okay? So you can think about that as you live in a world where people say things. I, I, I know sometimes God's people say things that without having thought well about it, I would not want us to be among them. Um, but yeah, I like Jesus, but not Paul. I call that theologically illegitimate. I call it theological nonsense. And it doesn't hold up to the test of scripture. You got a problem with God. You don't want his authority. You don't want him telling you what's true. That's the problem. Okay, I'll move on. Verses 14 to 29, unbelief and the death of a conscience. I'm not going to go through this big section line by line. A whole bunch of it's just pretty gruesome. But a couple of things that I, I think are interesting, verses 14 to 16 are the reason the whole story is told. And people are talking about Jesus. Word on the street. He's made the news. So people are talking about this Jesus guy, and they're not sure who he is. So some are saying it's John the Baptist. He's been killed prior to this story being told, and he's been raised from the dead. Some think Elijah is a prophet of what's going on. Herod, Herod has a guilty conscience. Verse 16 is the voice of a guilty conscience. John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. And then we're told what happened. Herod is haunted by his moral choice. Herod is haunted by what he didn't do. That is, he didn't do right by this weird guy, John, admittedly a strange guy with camel's hair, robe, and a leather belt. He, he, um, Herod knows he didn't do right. So what's the deal here? Well, the, the short story, this is, by the way, there are four Herods in the New Testament Okay, if you ever get stumbled over, it says Herod here and Herod here. Yeah, it's like the word president. If you say, hey, I spoke to the president, you'd be saying, well, which one? Uh, the term is used of a lot of people. Four Herods. Herod the Great was the father of this Herod. Herod the Great was the big builder. There are things you can go to today in Israel, and you'll hear from whoever tells you, this was built by Herod the Great. Uh, he was a great builder. He, did, they did, he and his posse did architectural things and engineering feats that are astounding. Things that today make builders' heads swim. You built this without any kind of, you know, big equipment? Yes, he did. Herod the Great was an amazing guy. Not a moral guy. Ten wives. No, no, really. Many of them at the same time. 
Herod Antipas was the son of wife number four. And what's going on in this text, just to keep it kind of uh, short and sweet, Herod was married to somebody else. Herodias was married to one of his half-brothers uh, from another, another one of the wives. And I, I, tongue-in-cheek, over family dinner one day, their eyes met, and he decided he wanted that girl. So he divorced his wife. She divorced Herod's half-brother. He married her. Yes, talk about making family dinner awkward. Uh, and besides, she's his niece. So John the Baptist came along and said, you shouldn't be doing this. That's morally wrong. Herod uh, probably would agree with that, but you find in verse 20, he fears him. He knows he's this holy guy. He keeps him safe. Herodias wants to kill him. Herodias says, you're, tell, you're, you're, you're disagreeing with, with, with what I've done. I don't like that. Who asked you to agree or disagree with what I do? She wants, she wants John the Baptist dead. Herod protects him. There's something about him. You see where his heart is? I don't agree with them. He's telling me I'm wrong, but there's something, just, there's something about this guy. Herod protects him. And then you get to the but of verse 21. And you, we read the story earlier. There's this, there's this a banquet, probably a drunken feast. He invites a whole bunch of the guys over. Herodias sends in her daughter to dance. Sometimes Christians are reported as those who don't like dancing. This is not about dancing. This is about a certain type of dance, the kind of dance that one would dance in front of a group of drunken men, that kind of dance. And this young lady who has a moral rap sheet as long as your arm is well in years that would follow, she dances a certain dance enough to where Herod, her stepfather, says, honey, I'll give you anything you ask. By the way, this is a figure of speech. I'll give you up to half my kingdom. I, I hate to pick on Herod. He's not the ruler of much. He's called king. It's a paper title. Um, you could certainly should put air quotes on it. Um, I'm from the area of, I'm over, in, uh, was raised over in Kitsap County. You guys know where Gorst is? Why are you laughing? <laughs> Very disrespectful of my hometown. But if I came in and said, hey, guess what? <clears throat> I'm the king of Gorst. <laughs> That's what you would do. You go, oh, you, oh, you are. That's amazing. That must be really something. Wow. Okay. How's the downtown? Never mind. You would laugh. Well, same thing here. He's, he's King Herod. Okay. You go, big boy. This is not a big thing. All right. He was given a fourth of the kingdom of, of Herod the Great, but this is not a, a king of Gallic, ruler of Galilee. Yeah. That was never, that was never like, oh, that's a big thing. Um, king, King Herod, but he has a little bit of power. He's still a scoundrel. Three years later, by the way, Caligula throws him out of the, king, out of the empire. Do you know that? Caligula. He wasn't a Boy Scout eager either. Uh, Caligula gets rid of Herod and Herodias just a few years after this. Kind of interesting. But, but the girl dances. Herod says, I can, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. It's a figure of speech, for I will reward you handsomely. That was quite a dance. What, what would you like from Papa? She checks with her mother and says, get John the Baptist's head. Now, when, when this happened in verse 26, it says the king's exceedingly sorry. I mean, you give her half the king, half of Gorst. I'm going to give you half of Gorst. <laughs> wow. Uh, that's pretty miserable. Well, he could have in verse 26 said, when she said, I want the head of John the Baptist, he could have said, that's not what I meant. I meant a piece of jewelry or a house in the countryside or a new chariot or a nice horse. I didn't mean I'm going to cut off the, the, the head of an, of an innocent man. But because of his pride, he made this crazy oath in front of a bunch of his drunken friends. And instead of backing down and doing right, the people do this different today. We don't want to look foolish. So we're going to insist on continuing something that we know is stupid or wrong but we're going to keep going down that path because to turn around the other way, it would make me look bad. I'd lose face. So instead, Herod sends an innocent man to his death. Send an executioner and bring me the head of John the Baptist, this holy man I've been protecting. Ah, doggone it. 
she got me. And he does it. John the Baptist says his head cut off in prison. That was that weird day. He's thinking he's just eating prison food for a while. And in comes a guy with the sword. And a good man loses his head. Somehow, all under the plan and purpose of God. I call this, though, in verse 26, the death of a conscience. Herod knew the right thing, and he didn't do it. He caved in. He turned his conscience off. He did what he knew was wrong. Now, I, a couple of things here. One, I'll not comment on. Third bullet point, just, just you can think about this. Um, his guilty conscience. It's, it reminds me of Edgar Allan Poe's story, The Telltale Heart. You ever read short stories? If you are not familiar with the story Telltale Heart, Google it. Read it this afternoon. It'll creep you out. Uh, it, it's supposed to. That's the purpose of the story. But it's interesting to read. I think that, that would describe, that, that, that the Telltale Heart would describe Herod when he hears of Jesus. Thump, 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 thump. He's back. That is kind of interesting. Short stories. Well, I, I, I wanted to comment, again, apo- with apologetics in mind, that, that theological discipline. Um, the, the story of John the Baptist and his death bring discussions about divine judgment and eternal punishment to the front. And uh, not only do people sometimes say, I like Jesus, but not Paul. Today, it's also popular to be doubting calling into question the existence of hell and the reality of divine judgment. More than one person today has said things like, I have a hard time believing in a God who would really have a hell. And I want to answer that very briefly with a couple of things to think about. As I have here, it's one thing to question God's judgment from the safety of your recliner in suburban America, where the worst thing that's happened to you is you maybe had your car stolen or somebody took your lawnmower. Can't God just get over it? Let me tell you something. You you go talk to somebody who's standing on a blood-soaked killing field around the world. People around the world who have had terrible things happen to them and to their families. And the people left and got away with it. And you know what they're going to say to you? They're going to say, I would have a hard time believing in a God who didn't have judgment and didn't have a hell. You can sit there and say, oh my goodness, just give everybody a hug at the end of the whole thing. And I'm going to say, he better not. There had better be a hell for people who do that to those people. So I'm just, I'm just pressing back a bit and saying it's, it's kind of fine um, for people to question the existence of hell when you haven't suffered very much from evil. But you talk to people down through history um, who have seen a lot of things that are happening even in our world today. Not just injustice. Evil evil. You just read the news a little bit. I'll save you the graphics. And you mean to tell me at the end of the day, God just hugs them all and says, oh, it's okay. Really? Really? Huh? For every person who says, I have a hard time believing in a good God who sends somebody to hell. You have a lot of other good Christians from around the world who would say, and I would have a hard time believing in a God who didn't. Think about that for a while. Well, I present that for your discussion uh, over lunch. (laughs) There you go. John the Baptist, a good man, laid in a tomb without a body, a head without a body. Wow. Interesting. Interesting. So what do you do with all of this? Uh, My heading, the devastation of willing unbelief. Indeed, the whole text drips with that. This isn't chapter five, a faith response. This is chapter six. And unbelief in Nazareth and preparing for rejection. And a good man who suffers a, a, a terrible end. Unbelief. I, I, I'd say a couple of things. If you're a person who's here today and you have questions and doubts, um, I, I'm not meaning by that that you are in the place of willing unbelief. I hope you're not in a place of willing unbelief. If you were, you probably wouldn't be in this room. Oh, questions and doubts are welcome. Wrestle with things as you must. It's good to ask good questions. I applaud that. 
I believe Christianity is the best answer. I just read a book um, called Telling a Better Story. It's a, new, a different approach to apologetics. I think the name is Joshua Shatra, C-H-A-T-R-A-W. You can find that on Amazon, Telling a Better Story where his assertion is Christianity answers the issues of life better than all the other options. Just try them on for size, and he does it. He talks through all kinds of other approaches to life and philosophies, including atheism and other world religions, and says Christianity gives a better and more, more, more soul-satisfying answer than what you have. Many people hold other positions or reject Christianity not having well thought through the options. And Joshua Shatra would say, maybe you should think through the options. Christianity gives a better answer. I think this text helps us with a little bit of that. My final little bullet point there under responding to God's word, we're closing this service today with a response from all of us, and that is to receive communion and to, to come again to remember Christ and his death on the cross in our place. But I ask you here about your own heart. Is your heart tender to the work of God? Are you spiritually responsive And in the words of the psalm writer, as reflected in Psalm 95, echoing other scriptures today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. No, response of faith, a response that says, I do want to believe, help my unbelief. If that's the prayer you pray today, that's good. Maybe that's enough. God, I'm willing to believe. Help my heart believe. Help me to. That's, God hears and answers that prayer. Well, I'd like to pray. I'll say a word about how communion works and what it means and invite you to participate. But let's close this portion with prayer. All right. Father, I thank you so much for this portion of Scripture. Uh, we walk with Jesus in his sandals through the lands of Israel. We hear his voice. We see his work. We see the stories today, all of it leading to the cross, where Jesus was our sin bearer, bore our sins in his own body on the cross. He was the one who stood in our place. Thank you that he did that. Thank you that Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead, ascended to heaven. One day we'll come again. We are grateful for this. And our Father, I pray that you would help us, help us in our belief. Help us as we wrestle with things that are hard to wrap our arms around. Help us to, to, to wrestle with such things with integrity and with faith based on the word of God. Today in this moment, as we remember Christ, help us now to look to Jesus. And I pray this in his name. Amen. Here at Sunset Bible Church, we invite all of you who know Christ as your Savior to receive communion. Communion is a, is a, a memorial moment where believers in Jesus remember the work of Christ. They remember his body broken on a cross, his blood shed in our place. And down through history, based on Jesus and his last, what we call the Last Supper, where Jesus used elements right there at the meal to say, remember me in this way. We use just a little cracker and a cup of juice. Uh, in Jesus' day, it was a whole meal. Wow, that's pretty cool. Part of, I think, Passover meal, as I understand it. But, but the little cracker is a, is a symbol. The Bible's full of symbols. It's a symbol of his body broken for us. The cup of juice, it's a symbol of his blood shed for us. And it's the intent is that those things don't like give you extra, you know, pizzazz in your step. The issue is a response of faith from your heart. From the heart of the believing person that says, today I'm remembering Christ and these little elements unite me again with God's people down through history and around the world even today in saying, I remember Christ. I belong to him. He lives within me. It's a way of identifying with him. And so we invite you, if you know Christ as your Savior, to, put, to participate with us. But I invite you to come now. I'll say a word when you are back to your seats and together we will remember Christ. So please come.
In the Gospel of John, there's an interesting story of Jesus talking to this guy named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And um, as part of that, Jesus says this verse that's been echoed down uh, a bit through the years, especially through the years of Billy Graham. Uh, But Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He meant something by this. Specifically, you don't become a Christian just by going to church, giving money to good causes, being a nice person, um, carrying a big Bible, or even signing up. Like, you know, signing up for a church or a doctrinal statement or, or I'm going to try it for a while. You don't try. It's not the way it works. It's not something you try out like the Boy Scouts. No, to be born again, to be born again is describe a work of the Spirit of God in your heart that will leave you forever changed. That's what it means to be a Christian in the biblical sense. A, a response from the heart to God God doing his work in us, born again, a change, a new birth. It's the work of God. Ultimately, it's the work of God himself. Okay? So when you, when you think about this, Jesus said, you must be born again. Nicodemus said, what in the world do you mean? That's what the whole chapter is about. You must be born again. If, as I said earlier, if, if, if you're at a place maybe where you'd say, well, man, I, 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 I'm open to all this. I want, I mean, I want to believe, I guess. I'm willing, place to do this, say, oh, God, do this work in me. Draw my heart to yours. Open my heart. I'm willing to believe. Help my unbelief. Help me. This is, these are good things to pray. If you know Christ is your Savior, good to say, Lord Jesus, thank you for the work you've done in me. By opening these blind eyes and allowing me to see Christ in all of his glory and to believe. Thank you for this. You must be born again. The little cracker points us to the body of Christ broken for us. His body nailed to that cross after being beaten within an inch of his life. Our sin was placed on him. We remember him together. Join me. Even as that little cracker speaks to us of the body of Christ broken for us, so a little cup of juice, it, 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 it's a symbol of it points us to the blood of Christ shed for us on the cross. Book of Hebrews, writer to the Hebrews, says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Our sin is that which requires a death of the person, bloodshed. It's that serious, our offense against God. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. The blood of Christ himself, better than the blood of any animal in the Old Testament. His blood, the Bible says, speaks a better word. Indeed. Indeed it does. We eat the bread, we drink the cup, we remember the Lord's death. We remember our need. We remember the work of Christ on our behalf. We remember faith in our saying, yes, God, I believe this. Let's remember Christ together. I'd love to have you stand with me as we head out to the week ahead. Uh, week We walk with Christ into the world, into our jobs, into our schools, into our neighborhoods. We go with him. Christ behind us, Christ before us, Christ within us, above us, all around us. We go in his grace. Would you pray with me, please? Our Father, we thank you so much for the scripture today, for the time of worship and singing and worship and prayer the encouragement of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. We're grateful for all of this as part of the morning. Pray that our faith would be encouraged and strengthened, even little bits as we come week after week. Thank you for Christ Jesus, who is our hope. I pray for these, uh, my brothers and sisters in Christ, those who have been with us throughout the morning at the other worship hours, that you would draw us together as a church family, encourage us, take us into this week as faithful representatives of Jesus, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.